To begin the new year, we, we are taking a little detour from the Gospel of John. Last week, if you were with us, as you know, we looked at Psalm 1. If you weren't with us, guess what we did? We looked at Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 def- defines what it is to be blessed, what a blessed man is, what a blissful, happy man is. In Psalm 1, he is defined by what, first of all, what he doesn't do. And what he doesn't do is he refuses to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, he refuses to stand in the path of sinners, he refuses to sit in the seat of the scornful. The scriptures go on to declare for us that this is a man who delights in the law of God. He delights in the word of God. He meditates upon the word of God day and night. He's in the word. The word is in him. He tests all things in light of scripture. And that man, that blessed man is promised to prosper in whatever he does. If you're in Christ, you're promised to prosper in whatever you do for the glory of God as you delight in His Word. That does not mean everything is going to be easy while you are here, amen? It certainly does not mean that, but you will prosper for the glory of God and the furtherance of the kingdom here on earth. This man, this blessed man, is compared to a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. He bears much fruit. He fulfills his purpose the purpose for that which he was created, the purpose for that which a woman of God has created, bears fruit for the glory of God. The psalmist goes on to define the ungodly, the wicked. All that the righteous man is, all that this blessed man is, verse 4 of Psalm 1 says, not so the wicked. The ungodly are not so. The blessed man who refuses to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the path of sinner, sit in the seat of scornful, not so the wicked. Why? Because that's who he is. He is the scornful. He is the ungodly counsel of the masses. As the man of God delights in the law of the Lord, not so the wicked. As the man of God meditates upon the word of God day and night, not so the wicked. The wicked are compared to chaff, waste, being blown away, useless. The righteous man, the blessed man, the happy, blissful man who has a relationship with the living God, compared to something that's living. The wicked, the ungodly, compared to something that's dead. Psalm 1 reveals for us two kinds of people, two desires, two ways of life, two roads, two habits, and two destinies. The focus for this month, before we get back into John, is the glorious Word of God. It's inerrant, it's infallible, and it's all-sufficient for the believer. Today, as we look at the Word of God, it will reveal for us two kinds of understanding. Two kinds of worship, both of which are the result of two kinds of revelation. Two kinds of revelation. And we will begin this morning looking into 
what's known as general revelation as we look to the words of the psalmist, this time Psalm 19. So if you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 19 and I will read through all 14 verses and we'll focus this morning on verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as the psalmist did, that the words of my mouth will be acceptable in your sight, that it will be you that is clearly seen this morning. So help me, enable me, empower me to communicate your divine truth to your people this morning. And for any that are not yours, I pray that today they would become yours. I pray that you would break them and bring them to true saving faith through the special revelation of the written word, your word, the living God. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, God's revelation to man is the theme of Psalm 19. If you think about it, it's, it's amazing that God speaks to us at all. If you understand your depravity, if we understand the depth of our sin and the separation outside of Jesus Christ that there is between us and God you would be amazed and you would stand in amazement the fact that God has lowered Himself to communicate to us. Amen? If you're in Christ, you understand that. We rejoice over the fact that He in His divine mercy has chosen to speak to us. If left to ourselves, I'm telling you what, if God were to leave us to ourselves, you and I would have no desire whatsoever to hear from God. But yet, Nonetheless, in His mercy, in His rich mercy, He reveals Himself to sin-ridden mankind. Now, God reveals Himself, by and large, in two ways. Universally, 
and specifically. Psalm 19 divides this revelation into two main categories. Theologians refer to these as general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the revelation of God in and through nature, whereas special revelation in this case is the revelation of God in and through Scripture. Verses 1 through 6, we'll witness the revelation of God through His creative brilliance. The splendor of the heavens, His creation. It's general revelation. It's God has granted general revelation to, to all people, through all nations, through all lands, throughout all time, by His creative force. The reality of God, the goodness of God, is written in the heavens for all of mankind to see. There's no one that can stand and have an excuse to not know. Verses 7 through 11, we see revelation through Holy Scripture. The revelation of God through Holy Scripture. And here we have special revelation of the living Word of God. It's granted by grace. And in verses 7 to 11 lie the answer to all of life's problems and complexities. So if you want to know the answers to all of life, make sure you're here next week, okay? Guarantee, guarantee. And we will come to see that the Word of God is totally sufficient to save, to sustain, and to lead men through life, bringing forth blessing and prosperity. Prosperity in a biblical sense. Not in this crazed sense that you see on the TV by these TV evangelists. I'm talking about in the sense of Psalm 1, that everything that the man of God does will be blessed. He, will, she shall, he, he, shall, he shall prosper. She shall prosper. And then finally in verses 12 to 14, a couple weeks from now, we see the postscript, we see the conclusion, which is the heartfelt submission of the psalmist to desire to apply these divine truths to his life. This psalmist is King David. King David's desire is to turn from sin. To have a heart, to have a mind, to have a mouth that is controlled by submission to the Lord who alone is his strength and redeemer. Now general revelation or natural revelation is often associated with modern science. Where anything that science is able to discover is general revelation. General revelation is not about science. General revelation is not about the creation. General revelation is about the Creator. Pointing us to the one who spoke it into existence. General revelation is general because it's generally available to all. To all people. General revelation deals with revealing God through that which is cre- He has created. And we'll see that in these first six verses. It's universal, it's, it's uninterrupted, it's forever plentiful. And His power is recognizable to all people. So what we'll, we'll look at this morning is, is there's three points of interest. The first is the glory of general revelation. Point number two is the purpose of general revelation. And then point number three is the consequence of general revelation. And we'll begin in verse one. King David says, The heaven declares the glory of God, and the firmament shows 
His handiwork. Heaven, firmament, are synonymous terms. And they're equivalent to our scientific concept of space. The glory of God here refers to His infinite power, His energy, and His handwork. That which He formed. That which He put together. He created it all. And it implies the variety and complexity of systems and matter in the universe. Verse 1 reveals for us the, the preachers of all nations that break through any language barrier. The vocal preachers that speak out in every land. The voice that is heard to every ear. Made visible to the blind. The preacher is the stretched out heavens. Psalm 104 verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 45 verse 12 says, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hand stretched out the heavens. And all their host I have commanded. Now, the solar system cannot be measured. We all know that. We learned that in junior high. It's ever-expanding. It's continually being stretched out. Jeremiah 31, 37 says, Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for, as, for all that they have done, says the Lord. In other words, it is just as impossible to, to measure the solar system as it is for God to break covenant. For God to break a promise. In other words, it can't be done. God will not break a promise. He cannot break a promise. Nor can the heavens be measured. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Look at this. Not one is missing. There's nothing missing. There's no loss of mass or energy. There's no gain in mass or energy. He preserves all mass and energy. That's the first law of thermodynamics, basically. Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What's going to happen to them? They will perish. But you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. And although there's no, there's no increase, there's no loss of mass or energy, it's not able to function at its peak, at its maximum intensity. Therefore, it breaks down. It moves towards disorder. It wears out like a garment. It grows old like your clothes, your shoes, your car. It's entropy. The second law of thermodynamics. Everything is subject to decay. Revealed for us in Scripture. Verse 2. Day unto day utter speech. 
Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. This is a picture here of a, of a, of a gushing spring that abundantly provides the water of revelation. It's just ongoing. It's continual. It never ceases. It never stops. It forever provides knowledge of the Creator. And this is not merely knowledge about God. This declares that He's Creator of all mankind and all of mankind is accountable to Him. We're completely dependent upon Him. Amen? The greatest pagan of the world, God-haters of the world, are dependent upon God for their existence. Whether they acknowledge it or not. Nothing and no one is outside of the control of God. He's sovereign and all-powerful. What He's spoken to existence, He sustains. He keeps it. The complexity here of time, space, matter, and energy is constantly uttering speech, revealing knowledge, teaching men and women of all ages throughout all time about the great Creator God, the one and only Creator. He made it all. The amazing thing about the Discovery Channel is, is watching scientists discover the power, the majesty of Almighty God through creation. That's what's so amazing about watching Discovery Channel, amen? Scientists, they give their life to this. They're discovering the power and the might of God. But since creation speaks no literal words, even though it provides an element of clearly expressed teaching, men continue to personally rebel against God. And not a one of them has an excuse. Nobody. Spurgeon said, and I quote, The lowest heathen are without excuse if they do not discover the invisible things of God in the works which He has made. Sun, moon, and stars are God's traveling preachers. End quote. Look at verse 4. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. So King David here compares the rising of the sun, so to speak, is coming out from a tent, the darkness or the blanket of darkness. Now, although the idea of the earth being in motion wasn't presented until centuries later, Isaiah and Job knew otherwise. Isaiah 40, verse 22 the prophet says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, the sphere of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Job, chapter 38. If you remember, Job went through all that great suffering, all that great loss. And in the end, towards the end, God inquires of Job. And he asks him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. A little sarcasm there. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then down in verse 14, 
it is turned as clay to a seal. Now in Job's day, Job being the oldest book in the Bible, oldest written document known to man, he was likely a contemporary of Abraham. In that day they would use a cylinder, a seal, to roll over clay and they would inform an impression on it and, and, or a printing in the clay. And God here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Job, compares it to the rotation of the earth. Amazing, all right here in Scripture. We could go on all day with verses like this. But in verse 5, he speaks about the sun. And he says, It which it is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. So here he uses the metaphor of a bridegroom coming out from the canopy of the bridal chamber. If you remember our studies in John chapter 2, the wedding feast where Jesus turned water to wine, we learned that prior to the ceremony, um, friends of the, the bride, they would lift her up and they would run her throughout town. They would lift up the groom. They would run him throughout town. And um, weddings in that day, unlike in America, the focus was on the bridegroom, not the bride. Therefore, we see Jesus as the bridegroom we the church his bride the focus is on the bridegroom not the bride we're married because of him but here this metaphor is really beautiful because what would happen is when they would bring in the bride and they would bring in the groom they would go into their marriage chamber and they would consummate their marriage becoming one we're one with Christ we're one with the bridegroom they would make the marital union complete. And like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, he rejoices, right? There's joy there. Not only does he rejoice as a man who consummates his marriage with his bride, there's also a rejoicing like a strong man, the power of the sun. As the psalmist likens, the course of the sun is power, is valiant, is, is fearless, is victorious, a champion. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the revelation is continuous. Cycle of day and night, the regularity of seasons. The day by day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Genesis 8.22, it says, While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. These six verses are referring to general revelation. Natural revelation of a creator to all of mankind throughout all of the earth. It's given for all of humanity to see. Now the impact that general revelation has on the believer who's been granted special revelation, we'll get to that next time, we rejoice over creation. We rejoice over what God has provided for us. A sunset. I literally stopped. I drove down this road, was going home, went up the hill. I had to stop and look at the sunset here Thursday, Wednesday, whatever night it was. It was amazing. It was beautiful. I was talking to someone about the sunset and he says, man, you, you know, if you tried to paint it, it would, the painting would be so exaggerated. Because it was so beautiful. It's, it's beyond comprehension. It was amazing. I tried to paint that. 
So you're a little heavy on the purple and the blue and the orange and the yellow and declares the glory of God. The universe declares the glory of God. The oceans, the rivers, the streams, the law of hydrology, it all declares the glory of God. And it ought to drive man to his knees in worship the Creator. Amen? It ought to. But it doesn't. So we move from the glory of general revelation to the purpose of general revelation. Now, general revelation, according to one theologian, is as follows, and I quote, It is the disclosure of God in nature and the constitution of man whereby all people gain an introductory knowledge of God. End quote. An, an, an introductory knowledge of God. General revelation is going to save nobody. Just hold that in your mind. Put that as a note. On your notes it says general revelation of. It should actually be general, general revelation through the temporary world. Special revelation through the everlasting world. That's my fault. You can scratch it out and do that for me, can't you? Amen? Thank you. You like that? In other words, all these particular aspects of God as Creator are given to everyone, so failure to thank and to serve Him as Creator is sin against knowledge. It is sin against knowledge. There will be no one in the end who will be able to deny having been exposed to such great knowledge. Look at Romans chapter 2. Verse 14. It says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and be between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to what? My gospel. All of man's willful ignorance will be exposed. Man's motives will be exposed in the day of Christ. Here we have an innate, an innate awareness of the Creator. An inward knowledge of God's unwritten law. Those who don't know about the truth, what about the pygmies? What are they going to do? They never heard the gospel. They have the law written in their heart. Conscience. They look both ways before they steal. They look both ways before they kill. Why? It's the law written on the heart. They know it's wrong. John Calvin in Institutes of the Christian Religion wrote, and I quote, Indeed, the universe was a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. It was a dazzling theater on which the glory of the Lord shone. End quote. You know, Calvin maintained that even if there were no hell, the truly pious person, the one who has a deep devotion and reverence for God, would shudder at the thought of offending the glory of God. You can only shudder at, at thinking for a moment, man, have I dishonored God in any way, if you've been graced with special revelation. 
those who have true saving faith. Calvin also said, and I quote, the knowledge of God is the natural realm, I'm sorry, the knowledge of God in the natural realm had only a negative function, that is to render humans inexcusable for their idolatry, end quote. You know, that's so true. The voice of nature is loud and clear. It testifies to the person, to the power and the providence of God. And creation bids men to believe and to turn and to serve Him. Even though, check this out, even though the light of the world has come, they run towards darkness. Now the one who spoke all of this natural revelation into existence also visited that which He created. Jesus Christ, the one who created it, the one who spoke it into existence, lowered himself, took on human flesh, and entered time and space, and was rejected. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him, Jesus Christ, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were what? Evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now not only did he speak all of this into existence and it declares his glory he also entered it. The light himself was rejected. You know, there are mass groups of people that are sunset-loving tree-huggers in the world. Amen? All kinds of people love the creation. All kinds of people worship the creation. All kinds of people claim to be one with creation. They're one with the trees that they love to sit under. They're one with the hills that they lay on to look at the clouds of the sky in which they're one with, right? They're one with everything. They worship creation, not the Creator. The creation is there to point them to God, not to point them to creation. It's to point them to the one who's spoken into existence, but they resist it. Why? Why? That's the question. The answer for that is in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, where we move now to point number three, the consequences of general revelation. The consequences of general revelation. Look at Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Actually, let's go to verse 20 and we'll work backwards. That's fun. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are what? Made. Even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? They're without excuse. Who is? Everybody. All people. Why? Look at verse 19. Go backwards. Because what may be known of God is manifest where? In them. For God has shown it to them. Back up one more time. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
They suppress truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest inside of them for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power. Even his Godhead. And they're all without excuse. You know, up to this point in Romans, Paul has been announcing the theme and the purpose of this letter to the church at Rome. He's been breaking it down. Why he's writing this. He gives all kinds of thanks. He makes a request. He talks about the living spirit. He has a humble spirit. In verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Is that good news right there, verse 16 and 17? That's good news. That's the gospel. It is the power. It what? The gospel's the power to save. And then he stops. And rather than on expounding about the glorious truth, which does save, he holds off until chapter 3, verse 21. And from verse 18 of Romans 1 until chapter 3, verse 21, it's all bad news. Everyone's condemned. The whole world is condemned because of unbelief. The whole world is guilty. He dispenses this dismal news about the wrath of God. So Paul wants to make it crystal clear as to why the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel is necessary. If you're going to share the gospel, it's very important that the recipients understand the bad news before you get to the good. Amen? Gospel means literally good news. You can start with the good news, just don't leave out the bad. Amen? Don't leave out the bad. It's best if you start with the bad news, make sure that it's clear. Whatever way you so choose to do it. And what we're going to see here in Romans is this downward spiral of damnation that begins with suppression. Now, a person can only suppress something of which they have knowledge of. And what are they suppressing here? Truth. They're suppressing it. Next time you're in a pool, okay? Take a volleyball. Put your hand on it. Push it down under the water and try to move about like this. Try to move about with one hand on that volleyball. And you know what's going to happen? Eventually, it's going to slip out one side or the other. You know what's going to happen? It's going to go up. Boink. Or imagine holding down, uh, as R.C. Sproul uses the illustration of holding down a spring with heavy tension on it, trying to hold it down. You have to hold it down and hold it down and hold it down because if you let go, it'll take your head off. What man attempts to do is suppress the truth that God has revealed through nature because they love their sin, which is their nature. Now verses 21 to 28 go on to describe those who refuse to acknowledge what is already known to be true. And they dishonor God. They don't think that His truth is worthwhile. And they therefore refuse to honor Him as God. And therefore we will see that God removes His divine restraint And as sin increases for the individual, shame decreases, and they therefore risk abandonment from God. Oh, that's dangerous. Because he then turns them over eventually to this, a depraved mind. 
And then he confirms them in their disastrous course right on into destruction. We see that through Pharaoh, remember? The great exodus? God showed himself mightily through those miracles. God showed himself in a great and mighty way, miraculous events before the eyes of Pharaoh. There we see mercy in hopes that this would bring this man to, to uh, repentance. But what happened? Pharaoh hardened his heart. God showed himself mightily again. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God did another miracle. Then God hardened his heart. God eventually turned that man over to the position of his heart. He lifted his hand of restraint. Think about your life. Before God graced you to come to saving faith, He had a restraining hand upon you. You know, you see God lifting His hand off of certain people and how that manifests itself and it goes into deep, dark evil. Amen? The only reason you or I didn't do that is because God had a hand of restraint upon us. You have no good in you. <laughs> I have no good in me. That's the grace of God restraining sinful man from the depths of such evil. And we see here what's called divine reprobation. Look at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor, will thank, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise now, they become fools. They're going to proclaim their own wisdom now. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them over to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then verses 29 to 31 go on to define those types of behaviors. Oh, the divine judgment of God, lifting His hand of restraint. So these knowledge-suppressing rebels go on to make some devastating exchanges. Notice, they exchange God's glory in verse 22 and 23 for an image. The result, therefore, God gave them over. He gave them over to their thinking. They exchange God's truth for what? For a lie, in verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Notice where it started. It started back in verse 23. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by corruptible man. Again, there's creation rather than the Creator in focus here. And that started in verse 22. They professed to be wise, but they became fools. They reject the truth of God. Rather than realizing and understanding that they're created in God's image, they want to create God in their own image. Well, I say God is like this. Well, you might serve this Jesus and all, but I say God is like this. That's what I believe. They're damned. God turns them over to their thinking, and then they exchange a truth for a lie, verse 25, and then God gives them over a second time to their vile passions. 
and verse 26. And then finally, they exchange the natural use of men and women in verses 26 and 27, and then God turns them over to a debased mind. That's the epitome of perversion. That's the epitome of rebellion. And that's why Paul uses homosexuality as the example here. It's not that it's the worst sin in the whole world, right? Rejecting God and not worshiping God is the ultimate sin. But to this, it manifests itself in this manner. Because what God has created to naturally coincide and fit together, if you will, a female and a male in the marriage bed, it just works. Amen? That's the natural creative order of God. If you're going to rebel against God and go to the extreme, not only will you pervert that which God has naturally created, a man with a woman, you will go as far as to invert it. To do the opposite. A man with a man. A woman with a woman. Exchanging the natural use of men, the natural use of women. Therefore, the third time, God turns them over to a debased mind. Verse 28. Debased, this word translates a Greek word that means to not pass the test. To fail. It was used to describe useless, worthless metals that contained an excess of impurity. You see this in Jeremiah 6, verse 30. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Debased. Depraved. And this is where we see God's wrath of abandonment. And this is not some outburst of uncontrolled anger here. Like we would have. Right? You ever lose it with your kid? Or lose it with anybody? Just outburst of wrath, uncontrolled? That's not God. God's long-suffering. Notice He turned them over three times. And you see people in three different places like that, and you perhaps got saved out of step two. Who knows? God's mercy endures forever. He can save anyone out of any situation there. Just when you're turned over to based mind, man, that's the hand of judgment. It's beyond hope. But God is long-suffering. God has absolutely nothing but hatred for sin. Hatred for rebellion and, and the men, men rejecting His glory. Hatred. As they exchange it for an image. They exchange it for a lie. They pervert it. They twist it. And then they invert it. They turn it upside down. They reverse it. You know, oftentimes you'll hear the cliché Christian ease today. You know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. You know, that's only true in one sense, but not in the whole. Probably don't want to use that. I think we ought to get rid of that saying because I think it panders to unbelief. Proverbs 6.18, you know what God hates? He hates many things. One of them, He hates the heart that devises wicked plans. Who has the heart that devises wicked plans? Human beings. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You, God, hate all workers of iniquity. This is righteous indignation. That's why sinful man is at enmity with God. That's why he's at war with God, because God hates the sin. 
God does not love everyone equally. Right? Husbands, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the what? Church. Which means you can't love your neighbor's wife as your wife. Amen? No. There's a healthy jealousy there. God loves the church specifically and intimately in a way that He does not have a love for the unredeemed world. Is that a different kind of love? It is, absolutely. You do not love your wives, you do not love someone else's wife as you love your wife. There's a difference there. But nonetheless, the testimony of the universe is consistent. It's, it's continual. It's clear. But sinful mankind is determined to resist the truth. Therefore, general or natural revelation does not, nor can it, convert sinners. It cannot. Although it does make each and every individual highly accountable. No one will say, but, 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 no buts. Condemned. Guilty. Even so, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't deny the fact that these truths, as revealed through creation, cannot be used to lead someone towards a true knowledge of God. And that's why Aaron read from Acts 17 to start the service. Paul used creation as a stepping stone as he presented the gospel. Turn there for a moment, if you will. Acts 17. Then Paul, verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus here and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, notice what he does, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And also, some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, an Areopagite, a woman 
named Damaris and others with him. So, he begins with creation. He begins with the creative order. He begins there. He works his way into the bad news. He declares the bad news. And then he declares the gospel and the good news. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of, the all, of it all, who died and what? Rose again from the dead. The result, some people mocked. When you share the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, some people are going to mock. Don't be so surprised. Don't give up. Well, I can't share the gospel. Every time I do, they mock. Of course they mock. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for, for righteousness' sake. Amen? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is reward in heaven. Some will say, well, we'll hear more on this matter. You plant a seed, you water it, they may want to hear more later. God's the one that's in control. And then, of course, a select few believed, joined him. That's always the case. Many are called, but few are chosen. So the problem is not in the nature of reason. It's not in the nature of explanation, but it's in the rebellion of the human heart. That's where the problem is. The problem's with the hearer. The problem's with the soil. Remember Jesus said that the seed is the word? The word is always good. It's the soil that's the problem. And only God can cultivate it and cause it to receive the seed. So the solution of Paul here in Acts 17 and the solution of any Christian preacher, any Christian, is proclamation. Declaration. As to who God is and what He's done. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to take that truth and do the divine work within, you see. And what happens? In due time, according to God's sovereign will, plan, and purpose, He will take His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then according to His sovereign plan and will, He implants it into the heart and He births conviction. How then does one come to saving faith? It's not going to be through general revelation. Paul wrote Timothy in his last letter before he had his head taken off. Paul said in chapter 2, verse 25, 2 Timothy, in humility, correct those who are in opposition. If, look at this, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. The repentance that you proved when you became a believer, you know that that was a gift of God. You didn't stir that up yourself. God permitted, God granted you the repentance so that they may, what? Know the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been then taken captive by him to do his will. So, for man to be saved is by the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit, which is special revelation. General revelation does not save. All it does is reveal to man that there's a creator and that he's guilty. He is guilty. And it brings him to the powerful, eternal, inerrant, and everlasting word. Go back to Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 6, we see the glorious general revelation of God of which we rejoice over as believers. 
general revelation through the temporary world, verses 1 through 6. And then we see the, the special revelation through the everlasting word in verses 7 through 9, which we will not get to today. But look at verse 7 quickly. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Converting the soul. Converting the soul. And that's for next time. General revelation is God's manifestation of His creative power through the world, through His universe, through that which He's created. It's made visible to all. Special revelation is God's disclosure of Himself to us believers by His living Word. That's grace. Saving grace. C.S. Lewis referred to Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world. He also points out the fact that the, the, the key line is the last in this section. Verse 6, which says, Nothing is hidden from its heat, the sun's heat. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this and he says, It is that line that links the witness of the physical creation to the witness of the Word of God. That's what general revelation is. It should drive people to their knees, Acts 17, seeking out the Creator. Jesus Christ. Just as the sun penetrates, it's enlightening, it provides life physically for us here, so the Word of God, in like fashion, is penetrating. It penetrates the heart. It enlightens the spiritual eyes, and it grants spiritual life, everlasting life, by the measure of God's grace. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, that he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book is two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them my father wrote them both general revelation special revelation the author the one and only living God revealed through the son of God Jesus Christ so general revelation which is nature proclaims, displays, declares the revelation of God's wisdom, His power, and His glory. However, the revelation of His Word is greater because it's given by the covenant of the Lord, the promise of God, which cannot be broken. There's many people who claim to know God, amen? Many people claim to know God. They look at and they admire creation and they reject the words of Jesus Christ, the Creator. And if people claim to know God because of what is made, what is created, and they reject the teachings of Jesus Christ, they don't know God. They do not know God. So, an exhortation for those of you who are in Christ. May we, like David, the psalmist here, marvel at the glorious creation of God. May we be reminded every sunrise, every sunset, that God created and sustains life in your life. You will not die before your time. Amen? None of us will die before our time. But until that time, may we continue to rightfully grant, rightfully give back to God that which is due His name. Glory.
And the greatest way that we can do that is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit by way of knowledge of the Word. Special revelation, which we'll look at next time. And next time, we will have the, life, the answers to all of life's complexities. Verses 7 to 11. So make sure you come back. Amen? The Word of God is sufficient. Enabling you to walk through life in the midst of trials, troubles, and tribulations. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, if all you are today is one who has an understanding of general revelation, I invite you to acknowledge all that Christ is, to acknowledge the Creator as who He is, and yourself as a sinner. Repent of your sin, as Paul said to those in Athens. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ. Embrace Christ. Believe. Trust. But you've got to call on Him for His mercy. I can't give it to you. The person next to you can't give it to you. Only He can give it to you. So I plead with you to plead with Him for forgiveness and to lift the veil of unbelief from your eyes. He might give you and grant you special revelation to understand the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the grace that you have provided all of mankind to reveal yourself, your power, your majesty through the creation of all things, the fact that you spoke all things into existence. We, we praise you that you have granted us physical life. May we understand, Lord, what it truly means to be made in the image of you, Almighty God. To be redeemed, to be saved by grace through faith. And may we, Lord, rejoice in creation, rejoice in you for that which you have created. Lord, every day, when we have a tendency to complain, to, to murmur, Lord, may we just simply look to that which you've created and may it drive us to your word, that which is greater than creation. The special, special revelation through your word. I pray for every child of God here this morning, this church, I pray that you would um, equip, bless, as the psalmist declared in Psalm 1, that each person here would delight in your law, delight in your word, to meditate upon it day and night, that they would be like that tree planted by the rivers of water, flourishing, Lord, and all that they do for your glory, that they would prosper, bear fruit, so that we can be a light, Lord, to the dying chaff that we are surrounded by. And for anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not know you, they are yet standing in judgment under the general revelation of your creative order, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning to see specifically by your grace, by the power of your spirit, the special revelation is revealed through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in thanks. In your son's name, Jesus, together we all say, Amen.